Hey everybody, welcome to Boston Confidential. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Buckle up, because it's going to get bumpy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in the metropolitan Boston area, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. We are a full-service investigative agency, but we do focus on in-depth background investigations for the financial services and business communities. But if you ever find yourself in need of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact Due Diligence, and at a minimum, I could direct you to the correct agency for your specific needs. Okay, everybody, just to get back to the podcast, this is actually the second episode of the Boston Marathon bombings, which occurred in 2013. During our first podcast, we had an in-depth bond burner style interview with former reporter Michelle McPhee. Michelle started her career in New York City with the New York Post. She later returned home and wrote for an extended period at the Boston Herald. A lot of you may know Michelle from the Howie Carr show. She used to fill in for Howie when he was on vacation, and she later went on to have her own radio show. She's also a prolific author, and she's written this absolutely stunning, stunning book. It's called Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanea Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombings. If you haven't read this book, stop this podcast, download it from Amazon, and start reading it just after you finish this podcast. It will leave you shaking your head, it will make you angry, and it will bring you back to 2013 when these maniacs set up off bombs at the Boston Marathon. Michelle McPhee brings all of her contacts, all of her experience to bear on this book, and it is absolutely phenomenal. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, the interview with Michelle, please, you might want to do that now. But the genesis of Michelle's book, Mayhem, is that Tamlin Zanayev was a U.S. government asset slash informant. He was recruited young by the CIA and later turned over to the FBI due to the fact that the CIA cannot operate domestically. Tamalin's end of this devil's bargain was this. He would provide information on various aspects of this case, and believe me, supply the information he did. In exchange, Tamalin sought U.S. citizenship, When Tamalin assumed that he was being played as a fool by the U.S. government, he became enraged. He started quite a scene at the immigration office in Boston. And just two weeks later, he was buying components for the bombs that would explode at the Boston Marathon in 2013. Okay, so that's a 10,000-foot overview of this case. There's much more details to it. But even this alone, just these plain details is enough for a congressional investigation in my mind. But we're going to table that for right now, and I'm going to take you back to the beginning when this all started. 
Okay, everybody, I'm going to do my best with this section of the story, but it's kind of convoluted. This is the deal. Anzar, or Anzor, was Tamalin and Zokar's father. But Anzor had a brother first in Dagestan and later in Chechnya. The brother's name was Raslan, R-A-S-L-A-N. And he was Tamalin's father's brother. So Zokar and Tamalan's uncle. And Raslin assisted the Zanayevs in coming to America. And he facilitated that through a gentleman who works for the CIA, who was a big shot at the CIA, Graham Fuller. I think it would be helpful to tell you a little bit about Mr. Fuller's background. He was a CIA hotshot and he worked for two administrations first in the Reagan administration and later for the Clinton administration. But during the Reagan administration, Graham Fuller was an on-the-ground CIA agent, and he was tasked with fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan after their invasion. Graham Fuller was a proponent of using other Muslim extremists against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And to be quite frank, the strategy was brilliant and ultimately successful. The insurgents beat back the Red Army in Afghanistan, causing them total defeat. And some say this was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union because they had spent so much money fighting in Afghanistan. And to come home after a loss like that was just devastating for the country. And they had spent that money and they needed it for infrastructure at home. So that's the geopolitical end of the story. So Tamerlan's uncle, Raslan, ended up marrying the daughter of Graham Fuller. So Raslan assisted the Zanea family in leaving Chechnya and heading to America under the guise of political asylum as Tamerlan's father, Anzor, had been reportedly tortured by the Soviet Union. So the family comes over here and applies for political asylum, which is granted. The whole family stays and the rest of the family is eventually granted green cards. The relationship with Graham Fuller continues. The Zanayev clan eventually settles into an apartment in Cambridge owned by a friend or colleague of Graham Fuller. So at this point, I should probably draw your attention to something called a T-file. This is where I believe the spycraft begins. A T-file has to do with a person's initial immigration application to the United States. In Tamerlan's T-file, there were two photographs, one of Tamerlan at 16 years old and one of another man, with blue eyes who looked older than 16 and resembled Tamerlan in no form or fashion. The strange thing about this is they both had the same shirt on, checkered black or brown shirt. A picture of it is within Michelle McPhee's book, Mayhem. If this was a legitimate immigration, why the clandestine nonsense? It's beyond me, but we're going to move on. There is another aspect of what would appear to be U.S. government interaction in the Zanayev family's immigration. 
on the application, it said that Tamalin had no maladies, no illnesses, no deformities, defects, etc. But when he got to Cambridge, Massachusetts, he was found to have tuberculosis, which is typically a non-starter for immigration to the United States or any country, really. You can't come into another country with an active case of tuberculosis. So strange again, right? So Zanayev family enjoys the kindness of America, and they seem to be living pretty decently. However, none of them is reported to have ever worked within the United States, and they were here for years. So that's another question mark is, I know they were on various welfare programs, but I don't know if that covers it to actually live in a city like Cambridge, Massachusetts. When Tamerlan first came over, he didn't come over to the United States radicalized. He became radicalized in the United States. When he first arrived, he developed a reputation. He soon got involved in boxing, but seemed to always have been involved with marijuana distribution, usage, and womanizing. He was frequently observed on the Cambridge slash Boston party scene, nightlife scene. And when he started to become radicalized, his friends were shocked, but maybe they shouldn't have been because Tamerlan began attending a rather infamous mosque in Cambridge called the Islamic Center of Boston. The founder of this mosque, I'm not going to attempt his first name, but his last name is Al Moody. This gentleman was one of the founders of the mosque and was ultimately tried and found guilty of trying to kill a Saudi crown prince. Another of the mosque's congregants was Tariq Mohana. He was sentenced in 2012 to 17 years in prison for aiding al-Qaeda, and he was training as a terrorist in Syria. He had plans on shooting up the Braintree Mall in Braintree, Massachusetts. His co-conspirator was also a congregant of the mosque and is currently on the run and believed to be in Syria. Another of the congregants, a woman this time, and I know I'm going to butcher this name, so forgive me, Afia Siddiqui. She's known as Lady Al-Qaeda. She was arrested in Afghanistan in 2008 in possession of several canisters of cyanide, which she was planning to use on New York City. She was a graduate of MIT and attended the Islamic Center of Boston Mosque. She's currently serving 86 years in prison for her crime. It has been fully established that this mosque follows theories within Islam called Salafism, I believe, but it's the same theories that ISIS currently follows to this day in their murderous campaign throughout Syria and Iraq. It seems that Tamerlan's boxing career and his radicalism progressed hand in hand. He soon met a woman who would become his wife, but he was arrested a short time later for battering her. And as the police showed up, he was seemingly proud of what he had done. He had straight out told the police officers that he had slapped his wife or his girlfriend at the time. This domestic violence incident would come back to haunt Tamerlan as it would at least slow down his application for citizenship in the near future. Tamerlan's boxing career was progressing. He had won two local Golden Gloves awards and 
really wanted to fight for the United States Olympic team. But in order to fight for the Olympic team, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Tamalin won the regional Golden Gloves championship in 2010, and Tamalin at that time was 23 years of age. Tamalin worked out at a gym called Y Crew in Brighton, Massachusetts. While working out there, he met several friends, one of which he paraded around the gym and extolled him as his only American friend. This gentleman's name was Brendan Mess. There was also a younger kid by the name of Eric Weissman and Raphael Raffi. Those three guys were involved in a pretty large-scale drug ring. Tamalin, for his part, had given up drugs and was becoming more of a devout Muslim. And he was always after these three to either convert to Muslim or at least change their drug-dealing, drug-using ways. So Eric, Brendan, and Rafi were friends, and they all shared a love for the gym at Y Crew. However, they shared a love for something else, too, selling high-grade hydroponic marijuana. Apparently, they'd also sell pills when available, but Eric had just been arrested for a pretty substantial drug charge. The other two had been arrested for domestic violence, and Brendan had been arrested for a strange fight in the streets of Cambridge where he apparently attacked pedestrians without provocation. So they were violent drug dealers and in very good physical shape. Eric was a bodybuilder. Brendan was a fighter as well. And Rafi was a physical trainer, a personal trainer, if you will. Fast forward a short time to September 11th, 2011. This was the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the United States and police were on high alert. The night was going as it usually did for the three friends and they ordered some food just before 9 a.m. Approximately 20 minutes later, the food was delivered, but there was no response. And the next day, you'd find out why. Brendan Mess's girlfriend had returned from Florida on a short trip and discovered a heinous crime scene. All three individuals were brutally murdered. Eric Weissman, 31, was almost beheaded and his genitalia was cut off and placed on his face. Raphael, also known as Rafi Tekken, 37, was murdered in a similar manner, almost beheaded with his genitalia mutilated. Brendan Mess was found face down, also almost decapitated with what police would later describe as a machete-like instrument. Brendan Mess's girlfriend ran screaming from the crime scene on September 12th, and that brought the attention to the police. One of the patrolmen for the Waltham police stated that this looked like an Al-Qaeda training video. These three men were almost beheaded. Two of them were sexually mutilated, and there was about $5,000 left on a coffee table in front of them. The high-grade marijuana that the trio usually had was sprinkled on the coffee table and on their bodies. This was a ritualistic murder on the 10th anniversary of September 11, 2001. 
So as the days wear on, in this case, Brendan Mess's funeral, people started to talk about the absence of Tamil and Zanaya because they were good friends. And at some point, one of Brendan Mess's relatives and friends separately went to the Waltham Police Department and stated that Tamalin should be looked at in this case, as should Brendan Mess's girlfriend, who was also a Muslim, and she was also growing more fundamentalist in her Muslim thinking. If this case on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 didn't set off alarm bells with the FBI, I don't know what would have. Brendan Mess's girlfriend seemed to have a built-in alibi. She had been in Florida the previous day and had only flown into Logan Airport on September 12th. So she seemed to be out of the picture in terms of her actually committing this gruesome murder. And to be quite frank, I don't know if she would have had the strength to commit these types of murders. Another interesting aspect of this case I should bring your attention to is another friend of Tamalan's by the name of, I know I'm going to butcher this name, but bear with me, Ibrahim Todashev, last name T-O-D-A-S-H-E-V. He was another friend of Tamerlan's that worked out at Waiku and was believed to have known the rest of the trio, Eric, Brendan, and Rafi. Todashev fled Massachusetts on the evening of September 12th and never returned. He went to Florida and was later interviewed by the FBI. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that issue as well. Remember his name. Despite Waltham and state police investigators being told to take a look at Tamalin in this case, it is unclear if that ever happened, and there is no record of it. Tamalin left the country four months later in January 2012 and headed for Russia. Back in March 2011, the Russian FSB, formerly the KGB, had sent the FBI and CIAs a series of warning messages about Tamerlan and his associations. They speculated that Tamerlan at some time in the near future would depart the United States, head back to the motherland, and engage in terrorist training with rebels in the Dagestan Chechnya area. One of these warnings from the Russian FSB was sent within days of the triple murder in Waltham, Massachusetts. It didn't stop Tamerlan, but he was now on two no-fly lists, and he departed for the motherland in January 2012. While in Russia, Tamerlan met with a cousin who was an Islamic extremist. He wasn't known as a terrorist in Dagestan or Chechnya, but he did not condemn the terrorists in the area. Tamerlan was later found to have recorded conversations with this gentleman. He also met with several other extremists in the area, asking to go to the forest and train. Several of these people ended up arrested. A handful died in an actual pitched battle with the Russian special forces that involved tanks, grenade launches, the whole nine yards. And news reports after this pitched battle revealed that the Islamist rebels believed that they had been betrayed by an informer. 
They seemed not to know who the informant was, but I'm willing to bet the CIA and the FBI knew exactly who it was. Tamon soon returned to the United States again. He flew without any problems on two no-fly lists, and his United States passport had expired. How does that happen? You're leaving a terrorist hotbed, returning to the United States, but nobody stops you to question you on your passport. You're on two no-fly lists. I leave you to draw your own conclusions on that. But I think Michelle McPhee outlines a very substantial case that this is where the rubber met the road in terms of Tamerlan providing information, A, to the American FBI, and then to the Russian FSB. Could there have been any shot in hell that the FBI didn't know that Tamerlan was a suspect in the triple homicide in Waltham, Massachusetts? Hard to believe, very hard to believe, but he was allowed to fly just months later to a terrorist hotbed where everybody around Tamerlan is either imprisoned or killed. All right, everybody, we're going to take a little break, but we'll get right back to it as soon as we're done. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. All right, so Tamerlan departed Russia and returned to the U.S. July 17, 2012. Shortly thereafter, in another of the series of coincidences, he received a notice to report to take his oath of citizenship in downtown Boston for October 16, 2012. All right, guys. I didn't mean for this podcast to go on so long. I just wanted to do a bit of a recap from Michelle McPhee's interview. But the story is so convoluted, I can't put it down. This might be a good time to go over something here. There's three things you'd have to believe in order to come to the conclusion that Tamlin Zanayev was not a government asset agent informant. Okay, One. You'd have to believe that Tamlin Zanayev was able to fly at least twice to and from an area of Russia that is a hotbed of terrorism while being on two no-fly lists. Is that luck? Does luck happen like that? I don't think so. The second one is, well, you'd have to believe that Tamlin's luck continues because he, his name was given in that grisly triple homicide in Waltham and was given by more than one person to investigators for the Waltham, Massachusetts police and the state police, which assist on all homicides in Waltham. His name was provided in that investigation, yet he was allowed to fly just four months later to a terrorist hotbed. He should go to the casino because his luck is on an absolute roll. The third thing you'd have to believe is, well, in Russia, Tamerlan recorded a distant cousin, and this gentleman was a radical in the area, and Tamerlan was found to have recorded all of his conversations with this gentleman. So you'd have to believe that this was not an FBI sting operation, that Tamerlan was gonna use these recordings for some other reason. 
You believe that? I don't. Additionally, you'd have to believe that the people that were killed just after meeting Tamlin Zainayev, who expressed an interest in Russia to go into the forest and train with these terrorists, that their deaths at the hands of the FSB was also just another coincidence in Tamerlan's life. Okay, everybody. Well, there was three things that you'd have to believe to actually believe that Tamerlan Zanayev was not an agent or informer for the U.S. government. Very coincidental. He'd have to be the luckiest person in the United States. But there it is. We're going to move on a little bit. I'm going to provide to you a timeline now, and then we're going to end it. I didn't envision this episode going so long, but again, there are so many moving parts to this, and I'm fascinated with it. And if you haven't read Michelle's book, please do so. So Tamalyn returns to Boston, flying again, well on two no-fly zones in July 2012. He returns to Boston goes back to the gym, gets to working out. He doesn't go back to work because he's never had a job. October 16, 2012, he has his appointment at Boston's immigration office. It doesn't go well, and the immigration officer contacts Tamalan's handler, Agent Cedarleaf, at the FBI. On October 22nd, Cedarleaf returns the immigration officer's email and states that Tamalin was not a national security threat and, I quote, was deserving of full citizenship, end quote. Fast forward to January 23rd, 2013, and another attempt was made from Tamalin to become a U.S. citizen. He had another meeting with the immigration officer who at this time was concerned about Tamalan's domestic violence case. He had taken a charge for beating his girlfriend, now his wife, and that usually prohibits citizenship from proceeding. Okay, so FBI agent Cedarleaf apparently did not forward to the immigration office the fact that he was indebted to Tamalin to the point where we would give him citizenship into the United States. At this point, Tamalin loses it in the immigration office and demands a name change, and he wants to change his name to Muaz Tamalin, the name he used in Russia when he went to the forest, when he informed on everybody that was around him. It would appear that Tamlin was thinking, if I use this name, maybe it will set off some alarm bells within the FBI, light a fire under their ass, and get me my citizenship. This appears to be the point where Tamlin makes the decision to go ahead with his bombing plans because less than two weeks later, he drove up to New Hampshire and patronized Phantom Fireworks, asking for the loudest, most powerful fireworks they had. He bought a ton of these fireworks, and they'd be later used in the bombings that went off at the marathon. That brings us to the fateful day, April 15th, 2013. At 2.50 p.m., the Zanayev brothers set off two bombs on Boylston Street. The city of Boston would never be the same. It's reported in Michelle's book that within hours, the FBI were investigating Tamalin Zanayev 
They were all over Cambridge in Watertown looking for Tamerlan and his brother. The manhunt continued, but on April 18th, 2013, MIT police officer Sean Collier was assassinated while sitting in his patrol car. On April 19th, 2013, the Watertown shootout took place where thousands of rounds of ammunition were fired, where the Zanaevs threw bombs, both handheld bombs and the pressure cooker bombs that they had detonated on Boylston Street. Guys, I do realize that we haven't really covered the carnage of the Boston bombing. The reason for that is I just can't do it. Michelle McPhee does a terrific job, a better job than I ever could in recounting it. Pick up her book, Mayhem, and you'll see. I had to do that portion of the book in two or three different segments because it is so heart-wrenching. So I couldn't do it. I wasn't brave enough. Michelle McPhee is. So check out that book. Three people were killed in the immediate aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. 260 were wounded, some in the most grievous manner imaginable. Legs and other body parts were strewn all over Boylston Street. It was one of the most horrific scenes on U.S. soil ever contemplated, ever observed. This was all due to Tamlin Zanayev's temper tantrum over citizenship. It had very little to do with what was happening in the Muslim world in the wars American was currently involved in. Tamlin Zanayev didn't like the fact that he had to wait to become a United States citizen. And this is how he repaid this country. When the death tolls came in, it was devastating. Eight-year-old Martin Richard was one of the first victims. He was followed by Christy Campbell, age 29. Another of the innocent victims was Chinese exchange student Linzing Lu, age 23, who attended Boston University. Days later, on April 18, 2013, Sean Collier joined this group. He was age 27. He was an MIT police officer and he was set to go to his dream job to become a Somerville police officer just weeks later. It took Boston police officer Dennis Simmons, age 28, approximately one year to succumb to his injuries. He was injured during the Watertown, Massachusetts shootout. BPD officer Dennis Simmons was described as a cop's cop. He worked his way up from patrol to the vaunted gang unit. He was the type of cop who took numerous guns off the street, but he also would see kids in the urban area without coats during the wintertime and go pay for them out of his own pocket. Dennis Simmons was one of the first officers on scene in the Watertown shootout. And these assholes were throwing bombs at the police through one near Officer Simmons. It knocked him down. He was concussed. He went back to the gunfight immediately. Officer Dennis Simmons succumbed to his injuries approximately one year later from a brain aneurysm that was thought to have initially been spurred by the concussion due to the bombs in Watertown. Okay, guys, this has been a tough one, but I'm going to leave you here. Just wanted to give you a heads up, though. In the next few weeks, I'm going to come back to this case, and I'm going to do an episode on Ibrahim Todashev, who was the co-conspirator in the 
Waltham murders of 2011, Daniel Morley, who is purported to be the likely bomb maker for the Boston Marathon bombings. And I'm also going to cover FBI agent David Cedarleaf, who was Tamerlan's handler at the FBI. But I'm going to leave you here and we're going to move on to our next episode, which will feature the Neil Entwistle case from Hopkinton, Massachusetts. This story also has a Michelle McPhee connection, and I'll tell you all about it next week. But in the meantime, please go out and buy Michelle's book, Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanea Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombings. Thanks very much, guys. We'll talk to you next week.